This talk was given at the North Carolina Zen Center. Our programming is made possible through the support of our members and friends. If you would like to make a donation to the Center or become a member, please visit us at www.nczencenter.org. We have found that it can aid one's understanding of a Dharma talk or Taisho if you sit in meditation beforehand, and we encourage you in this practice. Thank you for listening. So, good morning. I was just listening to us chant Master Hawkwind's chant in praise of Zazen, and um, the heart of what he's saying um, is in the line, especially for Sishin practice, is in the line. Um, and when we turn inward and prove our true nature, that true self is no self, our own self is no self. This is really what Zen is pointing us to over and over again. So what does it mean to have no self or not self? What does that mean? Uh, The Buddha, in his uh, exploration, in his journey, really discovered this for himself. um, And he outlined it in what he called the five skandhas, which are, uh, a skanda is a heap or a pile. It's a Sanskrit word. And it really, um, he, he outlined, he said, basically the self is nothing but these aggregates or piles or heaps of processes. That's all the self really is. If you can't really, uh, point to any one thing and say, this is self. So these five aggregates of of, uh, form, feeling, thought, volition, and consciousness. There's different translations, but um, that all of these, if we investigate each one, what we will find is that they are completely empty. There's no substantiality to any of them. So where does that leave us? So Master Hawkwind nails it right on the head to to turn inward and confirm for ourselves our true nature, this true self of no self. And how do we do that? Well, we continue to simplify This practice of Sashin is just simplifying over and over with each passing round, just getting more and more simple. Uh, As one of my teachers said, just become a simpleton. Become a complete simpleton. That's why we have the beauty of the schedule, because it just contains... It's like going to the bowling alley, you know, when you're a young kid, uh, perhaps even... (laughs) Uh, you do this now, but you put the rail, rails up, you know, on either side, so you can just chuck the ball down the, the lane, and it's going to stay in. Uh, Sashin practice gives us these guidelines and gives us the schedule so we can just let go of everything. We don't need to think about cooking. We don't need to be thinking about uh, what's next or what are we going to do, because it's all laid out for us. And so that allows us to let go uh, more and more, become more and more simple more and more direct. And it also allows our 
part of what we're doing here is recalibrating our nervous systems, which have been so over-functioning, overworked, that they need to be reset. So this simplifying process. You know, normally, um, well, I thought of it, it was like, a, it's like a machine or a, uh, maybe a factory process. You know, normally in a factory, what they'll do is that, you know, you might take some iron ore and some um, carbon and you mix them together, you melt them down and you uh, heat them up and get the, and they make steel. And then you may take that steel in some raw form, pound it out into a sheet, you know, and perhaps those sheets then go through a roller, get flatter, and then uh, some machine comes down and stamps it into a shape, maybe a car part or something, and then that's uh, put together with our other parts, getting more and more, uh, f- taking more and more of form, taking more and more of a shape. I think that Sashin practice is actually the opposite process of that. It's actually taking our shape, our well-hammered, well-put-together form. And it's taking that and sending a heavy roller over it, rolling it out back into a sheet. And then taking that sheet Sticking it in the oven and then melting us down more and more, burning off the impurities, burning off all of the residue until we're just back to our elements again, back to our basic elements. This is the process of retreat, simplifying, going backwards. My master said, taking the backward step. So to help with this process, I thought since all of you have been sitting, not all of you, but the people that have been sitting with breath counting, um, if you could maybe try to uh, refine your practice a bit more and practice letting go of the breath count and simply experiencing the breath. So if you've been counting, to drop the count, okay, letting go of that scaffolding of the counting, and see if you can just connect with that ex- physical experience of the breath. It can help to sink the breath down into the hara, down from here. This is our natural center, physical center. Coming down from most of us breathe from the chest high up, more of an anxious breath. But if we could begin to drop our breath into our bellies, we could become more grounded with it. And just let it, let yourself feel what it's like to inhale, pulling breath in as that expands and then exhaling contracts. With no tension. So experiencing the breath 
uh, try that and see what see what it uh, how it works for you. Letting go of the the count, letting go of the the thinking process that goes with the counting, and just become physical, and that's it. Another thing that comes up um, for me during Sashin is how to work with uh, mind states, different mind states, different feelings, different emotions that come up in our practice as we sit. As we sit, we are, like I said, we're, we're calming the nervous system, but that also allows, as the upper layers of the the mind become quiet, think of it kind of like a choppy lake. I was driving down near Jordan Lake um, on Friday, uh, and as as we lost power because there, it was so windy, all that wind, that, I don't know if you guys got it where you were, but that heavy wind, and the lake was so turned up, I hadn't seen it like that, it was uh, brown on the water, so much sediment on the surface, waves going everywhere. That's usually our condition, and so as we settle in Sashin, as we practice more and more, the lake of our minds gets more and more placid, more calm, for some of us. And so, in that process of calming the surface, what happens is, other things can start to come up. Other things that we've been pushing down actively in our life, through keeping the busyness on the upper layers going, then all these other things can start to come up and we can find ourselves in all kinds of mind states. Uh, Anger can come up. Uh, Fear can come up. Um, Sadness. Joy. All kinds of mind states can uh, beseech us and if we're not careful, can really be compelling enough to take us off into different directions. As also along with this, as Sushin goes on, we talk about what's called makyo, which is a Japanese word just which means illusory phenomenon. And makyo really refers to anything, any mind state. But specifically, sometimes we can um, begin to hear bells or um, see things in the floor as we're looking at it. You know, we can um, uh, have all kinds of interesting, sort of illusory things happen in our visual field, our audio field. Uh, this is normal. This is sort of like, uh, again, as the upper layers get quiet, more stuff comes up from the bottom. And we just have to kind of work through it. So if you notice any of those things happening, just to return to your experience of the practice and try to just let those things go. You don't have to suppress them. You don't have to push them away. But the thing, the way to practice with any mind state that interferes or comes up is to just let it be. You don't have to give fuel to it. You don't have to engage it. And you don't have to push it away. So neither pushing it away nor pulling it in. That's the way to work with these things. 
So last night we talked about Bodhidharma's encounter with Emperor Wu, as you'll remember. And Emperor Wu being so full of himself, full, so full of ideas about his form of Buddhism and what he was doing to promote uh, Buddhist uh, principles and building temples and all of that. And Bodhidharma says to him, there's no merit in any of that. No merit, whatever. So he's teaching him. What is he teaching the emperor? Well, one way to look at it is he's showing the emperor that when we look outside of ourselves for confirmation of who we are, we're really barking up the wrong tree. The emperor's looking for a confirmation of what he's done, kind of praise, looking for praise. And so part of what he's teaching us is life is not about tallying things. It's not a checklist. It's not a tally sheet. Many of us have that checklist mentality caught up in... We're actually taught to get things done, to really have this task-oriented way of being. It's not that in Zen we're opposed to accomplishments, but if we're focused solely on getting things done, whether that's in our work, our schoolwork, our um, even even vacationing, things like that, we can have that kind of thing of what's next? What's next? In our relationships. What's happening then is we're always in the future. We're trying to be. And so... We're always um, uh, ignoring what is present. So what we work on in Zen practice is keeping the present moment in focus. Uh, One way to put it is our gaze goes from looking out there to looking to what's in front of us. But Bodhidharma, in saying this, no merit, is also pointing to something which is even deeper, even more interesting than that. And something that's often misunderstood. No merit. So this morning we chanted the Heart Sutra, um, the Prajnaparamita Sutra. And in there it says... There's no eye, no ear, no nose, no tongue, no body, no mind. No color, no sound, no smell, no taste, no touch, or what the mind takes hold of. He's teaching us Bodhidharma, no merit, in the Prajnaparamita, are teaching us that ultimately everything is empty. Vast, as he says, when the, when the emperor says, what's the highest teaching of Buddhism? He says, nothing holy, vast emptiness, nothing to be called holy. 
So what is this emptiness? Many people take this to be a kind of nihilism or a denial. But this would be also a, a misunderstanding of what true emptiness is. Emptiness means that there are no limitations. It's pointing us to a world, to actually an experience, not just a theory, but an experience that each one of us can have where we transcend all boundaries, all limitations. Usually we experience ourselves as this. This is my outline. Here. Like a silhouette. This is where I am and everything else is out there in the world. Of course, in one way it can't be denied. But in another way, that's not all there is. That's not all there is. And each one of us can confirm that for ourselves. Of course, the most um, accessible image, I believe, or one of the most accessible images to get at this, of course, recognizing that these images and metaphors are simply that. But one of the most accessible ones is thinking of it like a wave. You've probably heard this. A wave, say, on the ocean or lake, that chopped up lake. The wave comes into being. It's propelled through wind, through currents, particularities in time and place. It has an existence. It has a beginning. It has a middle. And it has an end. Each wave is different from the next. They look similar, perhaps, but each one has its own shape, its own form. And yet, it's still the ocean. It's still the lake. That you can't, in another way, you can't tease them apart. You can't say, well, this is where the ocean or lake ends and the wave begins. That would be just an idea. So this is what our minds do. It, they create outlines. They create distinctions and forms. This is what um, helps us stay safe in a way. But there's another reality or another way of seeing reality where those distinctions fall away. So that's so when the emperor asks Bodhidharma, who well who are you then? Remember, he's perplexed at this point because he keeps getting denied. No merit. You haven't earned any. Well, what's the highest teaching? Well, nothing. Right? So then he goes, well, who are you? I th- aren't you some sort of holy man or something? And he says, I don't know. I don't know. 
when our ideas of who we are cease, when we're free from all of those, who are you? There's a... um, When I was thinking about Bodhidharma's I don't know response, this little story came to mind and I found it. I looked it up. It's really short, just a paragraph, a couple couple paragraphs. It's um, It says, One day, a rabbi, in a frenzy of religious passion, rushed in before the ark, fell to his knees, and started beating his breast, crying, I'm nobody! I'm nobody! While the cantor of the synagogue, impressed by this example of spiritual humility, joined the rabbi on his knees, saying, I'm nobody! I'm nobody! The shamus, or the custodian, uh, watching from the corner, couldn't restrain himself either. He joined the other two on his knees, calling out, I'm nobody! I'm nobody! At which point the rabbi, nudging the cantor with his elbow, pointed at the custodian and said, Look who thinks he's nobody. Look who thinks he's nobody. This is not what Bodhidharma (laughs) had in mind. So it's not a false humility, this not knowing. It's not a blankness, it's not a false humility, it's not a confusion. It's really um, where the intellect can't reach. It's unknowable in one way, inexhaustible. But the intellect can't reach it. So, I wanted to get start to get into another famous story from Zen that may help us with this a little bit. Before I do, I'm going to read just a couple of paragraphs from this book called Zen, The Authentic Gate by Yamada, Kohn Yamada. And this person is actually in our lineage of Zen teachers. He says at some point in this paragraph, or in this chapter about he's, uh, this, this part of the book called Experience of the Supreme Way, he says, we have to make a distinction here between Mahayana Zen, by the way, Mahayana means, um, it refers to a particular sect or part of Buddhism that puts forward the bodhisattva ideal, which is practicing for the sake of others, not just for ourselves. Uh, Of course, there are other defining characteristics of the Mahayana, but rather than get into that, he says, between Mahayana Zen and so-called Zen with the expectation of enlightenment, In Zen, with the expectation of enlightenment, the practitioner still has thoughts of awakening, asking questions such as, when will I get enlightened? Or, why is it taking so long? People sitting in this way can never truly become one with their practice 
of just sitting. One of the basic prerequisites of Zen experience is for the practice to become single-mindedly pure. Whether the practice is with koans or just sitting, as long as attention is divided between their practice and concerns about the outcome, the practice will never be truly pure. This is why the Zen ancestors criticized Zen with the expectation of enlightenment. To practice true Zen meditation means to sit without the slightest thought. We must put aside all other matters and throw away our entire mind and body into our practice, whether we are working on a particular koan or just sitting. Past Zen masters have repeatedly emphasized that the world of Zen enlightenment is absolutely unattainable through thoughts or concepts. Unattainable through thoughts and concepts. So, to uh, this is quite common to to uh, approach practice through thoughts and comments. There was a um, there's a case in the Gateless Gate, which is a collection of forty eight koans that comes down to us and which we work with in our practice here, taking up each one. And koans, by the way, are uh, these particular stories or sayings from, uh, mostly from Chan, uh, more Zen history, uh, mostly from the Tang Dynasty in China. And they've been passed down to us. And most of them are... Um, really under, ununderstandable from the intellectual point of view. We just can't grasp them. But uh, the, the way you work on one is to take it into your meditation and work with it until you resolve it. And one of the koans in this collection is about a man um, named Toksan. That's his Japanese name. In Chinese, he would be or Deshan. So I want to share with you over perhaps uh, even into tonight a little bit about this guy. So, Toksan was a specialist in a different form of Buddhism. He was a scholar and studied the what's called the Diamond Sutra or the Diamond Cutting Sutra, which is uh, really not a sutra. It's because um, sutras are the purported words of the Buddha. Well, this this is this and this was written much later in the three or four hundreds. Um, so, Toksan was a um, expert in this particular uh, sutra. And he was, and he had, was living in the north, in China. And he had heard about these Zen rascals in the south. And traditionally in Buddhism, uh, at that time, it was thought that to reach full awakening would take lifetime upon lifetime to get to. And 
Toksan heard that in the south, these Zen people were saying that each one of us could attain it instantaneously, that we could suddenly awaken to what the Buddha realized. And he was quite angry about this. And so he thought, what I'll do is I'll go south and I will teach these Zen folks a lesson. So what he did is he packed up the Diamond Sutra, which he had on these uh, scrolls, tablets, and created sort of like a miniature library on a backpack, packed his stuff, and he headed south. And he got to a he, he he probably went quite a ways. My guess is he went, you know, a, a few hundred miles at least down south. So you can imagine the kind of journey. And to make that kind of journey, what kind of passion he must have had to pack up and carry this backpack for hundreds of miles just to go teach the Zen, these Zen people a lesson. And on his way, when he was reached the south, you can imagine, he was exhausted. And so he, they used to have these um, tea shops on the side of the road in China. And there were these uh, mostly old women that would sell tea and sweet cakes to refresh travelers on the way. In fact, uh, this, this, um, um, these tea cakes were called mind refreshers. And so Toksan stops at one of these, and the old woman running the tea stand notices that he's wearing Buddhist robes, and he's got this backpack full of books, full of scrolls. And uh, so he, so he asks for um, a tea cake, and she looks him up and down, and says, Oh, venerable sir, I see that you're a monk. What is, what's in your backpack there? And he very proudly says, Well, this is the Diamond Sutra. He actually had a nickname, Diamond Chow. Uh, so, he said, I'm, an, I'm a scholar, I'm an expert on the Diamond Sutra. She says, is that so? Is that so? Well, let me ask your reverend a question. Now, you got to be uh, savvy enough to know that when you meet an old woman, an old Chinese woman in these Zen stories, they're never innocent. <laughs> they're not just an old lady. So she says to him, let me ask you a question. It says in the Diamond Sutra, it says, past mind cannot be found, present mind cannot be found, future mind cannot be found. Let me ask you, your reverend, with which mind are you going to eat this cake? Another translation is present a future a past mind cannot be grasped. 
present mind cannot be grasped. Future mind cannot be grasped. With which mind will you eat this cake? Or which mind do you want to be refreshed? And of course, he go, he just go, uh, 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 you know, stopped up, unable to respond. And so, he just doesn't know what to say. So we don't know whether or not he actually got a cake or not. But it really, um, it really worked on him that he didn't quite get what she was saying. And so he asked her, he asked her if she knew of any Zen teachers around. <coughs> you know, this is why he came down. And so she points, she points him up the hill, and she says, go there, and you'll find Master Lungtan, or Ryotan. And uh, Lungtan, or Ryotan, means dragon pond, dragon pond. And so he marches up to Dragon Pond Monastery. Now, in China at that time, the, ma- the masters always took the name of the mountain or the distinguishing feature of where they lived. So Master Ryotan, um, he named himself after this area, Dragon Pond. So Ryotan marches up, or uh, excuse me, Toksan marches up to see Ryotan. I think I'm going to leave it there for now. And I will... Uh, we'll continue with this story, uh, getting to know Toksan, perhaps a little later, maybe tonight or tomorrow. But I want to um, emphasize the point that with Toksan, he's on a journey. He's, he's on a journey to travel several hundred miles simply to refute these southern teachers, we, we might begin to question whether or not that's his real intention. We all have reasons why we do things, but oftentimes those reasons are not the real reasons. Sometimes we're even unaware of why we're doing something. We may think, one way, and then come to realize much later that we're actually uh, doing it for a completely different reason. Each one of you is here for a reason. You could say, well, I thought it would be an interesting thing to do. Or, I wanted some, uh, I wanted to, to write about it for a college essay. Or, I want to de-stress. We each have our reasons, but perhaps we begin to look a little deeper. Why else might we be practicing? Why else, uh, why else would Toksan travel? And there's no Ubers in ancient China. He had to walk. 
Why? What would be compelling him to take such a journey? So, with that, we have a few minutes left. If anybody has any uh, questions or comments or reflections, I want to open it up. <laughs>